Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Hunt and Onyx Maps. Now, I got to have a, a little heart-to-heart with you here real quick. I used Onyx Maps on my phone every single day during the hunting season, whether I was out west during my elk hunt, South Dakota mule deer hunt, or my rut vacation in Iowa. I was on my phone using Onyx Maps every part of the day, whether I was looking at terrain features uh, on the topographic and, and satellite maps that they offer on their uh Uh, on their app or if I was leaving a waypoint like a watering hole or where I left my trail cameras or tree stands or if I was marking a route from a campsite to a glassing position or from my truck to a tree stand location. I used Onyx Maps every single day and I feel like it's an app that made my life a little bit easier. I don't know about you, but uh, there's been times in the past where I have been trying to find a tree stand based off of memory and not off of looking at a map. And uh, I I have gotten lost in the dark before. I had to wait till sunup and then and then you know find it that way. But that problem does not exist anymore because of onyx and uh, there's a ton of other features that i think you guys need to check out go to onyxmaps.com and uh, check out uh, all the functionality of the app Uh, download it to your phone give it a try and when you do decide to purchase enter the discount code nation 20 n-a-t-i-o-n two zero and for new users you're going to receive 20% off. So, onyxmaps.com. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, 
but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet, Chasing Bear. I have always been fascinated by snakes. Snakes are one of those critters that give the wildness to wild places. On this podcast, we sit down with Dr. Chris Jenkins. Chris is a venomous snake expert, and we have an absolutely fascinating conversation. He answered a ton of questions that I've had my whole life about venomous snakes. This, to me, is one of the most uh, information-rich podcasts that we've done that really every outdoorsman and woodsman ought to listen to. To me, we ought to, as, as woodsmen, we ought to be understanding more than just the animal that we're after, but we ought to be understanding the ecosystem, the environment, and that, in most places, includes snakes. So, this is a super cool podcast with Dr. Chris Jenkins. We are continuing on with our giveaway of what we've been doing, which is if you leave a review of our podcast on iTunes and send us a screen clip of the review, we will consider your entry, consider that an entry for uh, getting either uh, a Northwoods Bear Products bottle of scent or this week, what it is, is our partners at W Hunting Supply are giving away a t-shirt and a gift card. T-shirt and a gift card to one person that leaves us a review, gets a screen capture, and then communicates that back to us through Instagram private message, Facebook private message, or an email at info at bear-hunting.com. If you've already done it, thanks a ton. we got a lot of good feedback or a lot of good reviews on the podcast we really appreciate that and you are also in the running still so this week it's from our buddies at at w hunting supply also want to give a shout out to our buddies at the western bear foundation they're a non-profit bear hunting conservation organization out west check out those guys they're doing a ton of great stuff out west on now to the podcast about venomous snakes with my buddy, Dr. Chris Jenkins. Well, we are in Hartford, Tennessee, which is hour and 45 minutes from where my guest, Chris Jenkins, lives. Um, we're, at a, we're at a pretty nice gas station here, I'd say. Yeah, it's a good spot to, to get a little breakfast, get a biscuit and yeah. a coffee and, uh, yeah, in the beautiful mountains. So yeah. Man, it is a dreary, foggy day. This is why they call these the Smoky Mountains, I guess, is because the fog is incredible here. It yeah. really is. Yeah. I guess the steepness of the mountains and the the humidity, I don't know, something about these mountains really is pretty unique for fog. Yeah. No, I agree. They call it Smoky for a reason. So. Yeah. Well, thanks a ton for coming over here. Chris, give me give me a general introduction. And, and we said before we we met fifteen minutes ago. And now I knew about you through through backcountry hunters and anglers, and uh, and just stuff that I'd seen online. But what's cool about this podcast is I've got a ton of questions for you about who you are and what you do. And the, one of the main things we're going to talk about, uh, and we'll probably talk about other things, but is about venomous snakes. 
So that's what this podcast, if you've clicked yes, on this podcast and you get the EBGBs from Venomous Snakes, keep listening. Don't turn it off. But um, no, so give me a just a even a personal introduction, where you're from and kind yeah. of what you're doing these days. Well, well, I'll start off by telling you where I'm at and then, you know, how I got there. So, right. you know, first of all, I walk a very fine line in my life. You know, my greatest loves in this world um, outside of my, my personal life and my family are are snakes, in particular venomous snakes, and hunting and fishing. And mm-hmm. oftentimes, hunting and fishing community is not the greatest fan of snakes, and oftentimes snake fans are not the greatest fans of hunting and fishing. That's, mm-hmm. that's a broad generalization, but, yeah. but I walk that fine line between the two, and so yeah. that's pretty interesting. So currently, I am the... Uh, I'm the chief executive officer of the Orianne Society, which is a nonprofit. And we focus on, you know, basically research and conservation of rare reptiles and amphibians um, all around the world. Mm. Um, but my personal specialty would be venomous snakes and rattlesnakes. Um, I also serve as um, the uh, chair of the Viper Specialist Group for the mm. International Union for the Conservation of Nature, uh, which administers the Red List. For example, uh, you know, there would be a bear specialist group. Um, okay. There's a kind of a specialist group you know, for every group of animals. So I created and, <clears throat> and chair the, the Viper Specialist Group where I work with and coordinate hundreds of people in countries all around the world doing viper mm. conservation biology. Um, and I'm also the uh, founding chairman of the soon-to-be Georgia chapter of, of backcountry hunters and anglers. So I've got kind of a, uh, you know, I've taken a long circuitous route, as most of us have through, through yeah. life. But in my career, first of all, I grew up in New England um, and uh, uh, spent a lot of time there, uh, I ended up, I kind of grew up as in the outdoors. I grew up in a very rural part of New England. and What, grew, what state up there? I grew up in Massachusetts, kind of right okay. on the Massachusetts-Vermont border right in that okay. area. Okay. And I ended up, uh, I ended up, you know, as a child, I was, I was real into the outdoors. I was, you know, mm-hmm. I would hunt and fish and, and hike and spend a lot of time uh, in the woods. And, uh, you know, I actually had... Uh, quite a fear of snakes when I was a young child. Mm. You know, a lot of a lot of people in my line of work have the opposite story. You know, they were always okay. out hunting yeah. down these animals, trying to find the snakes, trying to find the frogs. I actually had quite a fear of them. And mm. uh, were there venomous snakes up there in Massachusetts? <clears throat> there are venomous snakes in Massachusetts, but there's only a handful of populations left. They're actually one of the they're an endangered species in the state. Um, in, what have they got up there? Timber rattlesnakes, okay. um, and they're copperheads in parts of the region as okay. well. Okay. Um, most New England states, you know, New Hampshire's down to one population. Vermont's down to really two. They're mm. extinct in Maine. There's mm. maybe five or six in each of Massachusetts and Connecticut. So um, it's a they're one of the, the five big, or six individual animals. I'm sorry, populations. Got it. Got it. Got it. Uh, New Hampshire did get to a point where you could count the number of snakes um, in right? the state, real low numbers. Um, they're working on, on turning that around. But, mm. uh, <clears throat> but anyway, so I grew up there, and I ended up uh, going to do my undergraduate uh, degree at the University of Massachusetts in the wildlife biology department. Okay. And I actually, I am a, a bear fanatic. I wanted to mm. be a bear biologist. Mm. That was my goal yeah. uh, in wildlife school. And I ended up <clears throat> having my first uh, 
my first summer internship was out in California in the Sierra Nevadas. And it just happened to be on turtles and frogs. Mm. And so I went out and I did the job and uh, it was it was a great experience. I saw my first rattlesnake in the wild up in the up in the Sierras at a place called Shaver Lake, and uh, and it, it was interesting. When I got back to New England, I just found I was going out in the woods. I was still interested in bears and tracking deer and all of that, but I found myself continually going to wetlands looking for frogs, looking mm. for snakes. So it just changed this perspective, and I really uh, and I knew I had this this fear of snakes. I realized it was actually this really intense fascination. And, mm. and so I was... You redefined that, what maybe your mother would have called fear. Exactly. And <laughs> everybody has it. You know, when I talk about snakes to people, I, I always mm. say nobody's indifferent to a snake. You right. don't just yeah. walk by and be like, there's a squirrel. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's extreme, <clears throat> excuse me, fear. It's extreme excitement. It's, ex- it's an extreme it's emotion. Yes. Yeah. So... I took, <clears throat> excuse me, that extreme and realized it was actually fascination. And I forced myself to, to explore that. So I bought a snake as a pet mm. and I started spending time going out and looking for them and, and yeah. you know, searching out people who, who uh, you know, were working on them and yeah. going out with them. So uh, going on from there, I went on, I did my master's in wildlife conservation at also at University of Massachusetts. And I didn't quite get to the point of working with snakes, but I did my master's research on salamanders up in New England mm. um, and just kind of continued that growth. And, uh, and then from there, I went out to Idaho and I lived in Idaho for about 10 years. I did my PhD mm. on uh, Great Basin rattlesnakes uh, real close to Yellowstone, kind of in southeast Idaho, just just southwest of Yellowstone yeah. National Park. And, uh, you know, I spent my entire time out there working on the ecology of rattlesnakes and, and just dove in, you know, yeah. foot, feet first. And, and basically, after those experiences that I had um, in, uh, in California that introduced me to reptiles and amphibians career wise, I have not looked back. Um, mm. I've continued my interest in, in hunting and fishing in the outdoors through that whole time, yeah. but it was really on the personal side. It was more recently that I kind of got into the, the, the conservation world within the hunting and fishing yeah. space. So, man, that's fascinating. So, so you have a doctorate in what? I have a doctorate in, in, biology biological yeah. sciences okay so yeah. yeah um you know the i guess the the fascinating thing and and i would know very little about it but reptiles would be an indicator species is that right i mean in most cases in, an indicator species meaning they indicate their health indicates a whole lot of stuff being in check or out of check in the ecosystem structure above them. Is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, I would say many reptile species um, and many amphibian species as well in particular um, would be indicators of of different types of things in the environment. Um, A lot of animals that, that respond really quickly to change are good indicators because their populations... Uh, would change very quickly and don't respond well. Why, why would a salamander be that? So salamanders are, um, first of all, they their skin, many salamanders, yeah. many of the salamanders here in these mountains, 
um, first of all, I should say we are we are sitting in the biodiversity hotspot in the world for salamanders. Is that right? The Southern Appalachians are the hotspot. Mm. More species of salamanders here than anywhere. But mm. um, uh, salamanders. Mike, w- next question after you answer the first question is why is that? So <laughs> go ahead and answer the first question, then we'll go back to the why. <laughs> so, um, so salamanders as well as other amphibians. They have a different type of skin than we do. It's very porous. Um, And that's why you think of of frogs and salamanders and things like that needing to stay wet. And that's because their skin does need to stay wet. And there are some species, many of which live in these mountains right here, that don't even have lungs. They actually breathe through their skin, and their their skin needs to be wet to to facilitate that. Um, And so because of that, their skin is very porous and absorbs a lot of, um, right. you know, it just has the ability to absorb So any change and any environmental change is going to dramatically affect their life cycle. Certainly. And we, uh, you know, we have a global amphibian crisis right now where hundreds of species in recent years have gone extinct. Um, there are diseases, a, a couple kind of premier diseases, but there are diseases that are hitting these amphibians that are just causing waves mm. of declines. I mean, we mm. being the, the greater group of herpetologists in the world have, have followed the decline of Central American uh, amphibians, for example, and moved like a wave through Central mm. America. And a lot of the snakes that fed on the salamanders declined behind them. So wow. they, are, they are great indicators. I will yeah. say there are other reptiles that, that serve um, kind of interesting other ecological roles, like keystone species or umbrella type species we could get into those terms yeah but your second question was oh why 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 is yeah. why are the southern appalachians a hot spot for salamanders yeah so the southern appalachians are uh, i mean they're a wonderful place uh, i mean I, I feel like i've lived here about 10 years and i've lived in different parts of the country again new england the rockies i've traveled the world but you know, I feel like I moved home. You know, I yeah. mean, I just I love it. Here. You know, it's hard not to feel like you've moved home when you come here. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I don't know why. I, w- my wife actually said when I was coming over here to see Mr. Roy, she said uh, I can't remember how she said it. She's been over here. She said I feel like you're going. I feel like you're going home. She actually said that. <laughs> maybe it's a common theme here. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, no, it's great. The people are great. Maybe They're... it's the Dolly Parton signs on the yeah. interstate. They're like, "Welcome to Tennessee." <laughs> It's a, it's just a great part of the world. The people are great and friendly. There's a deep culture and heritage that's, yeah. that's remained largely. Yeah. And, and you're surrounded by public land and wildlife. It's just a wonderful place. Yes. So in terms of salamanders, um, th- this is an interesting area because as you think about how our country was glaciated over okay. time, uh, this was a real refugia. And, and so, like, what does it, that mean? It, uh, it's, it was a refuge. It okay. was a place that wasn't glaciated, and places to the north, not so okay. far north, were. So, were, a lot were of animals, there parts on the east coast that were glaciated? Yeah, certainly north of here. Like, if you go up to, you know, some good bear hunting country, say, like, the mountains in Maine or New Hampshire. Right. And, and you go out in the mountains, they have a distinctly different feel in that, okay. you know, if, if I'm sure you've These been there. mountains are very karst, maybe uh, very steep. Even for being an older range, they're they're pretty not sharp, but I mean, yeah, you just go straight up and straight straight down. up and down. You go up to Maine, you're gonna find these giant like boulder fields and huge okay. swamp wetlands. 
all okay. of that, those landscape features were created by ice that came through and tore up that landscape. We didn't have that. That's why our mountains here have just eroded over yeah, time. Yeah. And that's why you don't see those types of features. There's, there's rock exposed, but you don't see those giant talus fields that you see in the Northeast. So yeah. anyways, <clears throat> as a refugia, it's also a very complex place. There's a lot of slope, as you mentioned, and there's a lot of different aspects or the way the mountains face north, south, east, okay. west. And so what that results in is all these interesting little, you know, we'd call them niches or, or little places that, that animals could go to and in a very small area find something that they need. Maybe it's that, dark and cold and wet. That might be like the north side of a mountain and there's... Because the irregularness of a eroded mountain landscape, there's just tons of north-facing slopes or east-facing slopes. Or exactly, and so, and then you combine that with all the water, and so our stream systems. Again, we don't have the big wetlands, but our stream systems are complex, going all the way from high elevation seeps all the way down to big rivers. So you have this real, you had a, a, a high diversity of niches as I, as I described and and you had all these animals that were pushed into this area and the thought is that they went into these places and because of that you had mm. the development of a lot of species that over time during that period evolved in a particular niche and what we're living in today with the salamanders and many other animals is kind of the remnants of that wow that makes total sense mm. so to jump to Venomous snakes. First of all, you corrected me before the podcast because I said poisonous snakes. Mm-hmm. Tell tell us why that's wrong. Yeah. So the first thing I'd say in, in in general with snakes is that so much of what you hear or learn through family, friends, media um, are, are myths or exaggerations. Mm-hmm. And and so if somebody saw one garter snake in their backyard. They saw a hundred diamondback rattlesnakes that were chasing them through the yard. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm exaggerating there, but that that's what right. happens. And so, um, the size of snakes get um, exaggerated. For example, the numbers of snakes. But uh, so this is one of those things. I wouldn't call it a myth. It's just uh, it's not. I, I personally. Um, it, it doesn't bother me, but but a lot well, of people... it's improper it, word usage. Yeah, so if, if, if something is poisonous, there are many... We were talking about salamanders. There are poisonous salamanders, for example, where if something else ingested them, if you were to eat a poisonous salamander, or if a predator okay. was to eat it, that would be um, a poison. Uh, and versus a venom it is something that envenomates you, something that delivers it's injected it to into you. you. And so our venomous snakes have mechanisms for injecting very complex venom cocktails, if you will, that can make us sick in different ways. So a mushroom would be poisonous if you ate it and got sick. Yes, sir. A rattlesnake is venomous when he injects venom into you. Yeah, that that makes sense. That makes sense. Exactly. Well, what, okay, tell me about the, tell me about the organization that you work for. And I, I, I ultimately want to get to talking about timber rattles, rattlesnakes, copperheads, mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, I, I'm an old snake man. Yeah. Okay. I really am. I, I've been fascinated with snakes my whole life. And uh, I was an early adapter because of my father, who was an early adapter, 
of guys that didn't kill snakes. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, yeah, you, you grew in these mountains and the mountains of the Ozarks and Washita's and Arkansas. I mean, people killed snakes. That's oh, what they did. Uh, you, you know what I mean? All around the world. Yeah. You were probably an outcast because. <laughs> well, but it, and it was my dad who no one taught him that. He just was out in the woods enough mm-hmm. that he, you know, early on he killed rattlesnakes and stuff. And, yeah. and, and he got to a point where he was like, that snake's not trying to hurt me. And he valued it. Yeah. And he passed that on to us. And, and, uh, and I actually got to where I like to, I like to, I don't do it anymore. I, I like to catch them and release them, yeah. you know, just with my hands. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but anyway, so I, yeah, that's I, where I, I want to get to that. But tell me about the organization yeah. that you're. Well, I'd love to get to all that. And I'll tell you some of my philosophies. And I think a lot of people would be, uh, might be a little surprised that, you know, I, that I'm not, you know, real extreme on that. But I have some interesting thoughts on that that I'll talk about. But to start off, I'll start with the Orient Society, and I'll, I'll briefly just tell you the origins. So okay. um, I was, uh, after I finished my Ph.D. at Idaho State, I was working for Wildlife Conservation Society, which is um, best known as the Bronx Zoo. The Bronx Zoo is the headquarters, but they have hundreds of conservation biologists all over the world. And I was working in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem on rattlesnakes and sage grouse and a whole variety of, of wildlife. <clears throat> and uh, I got contacted by a gentleman from New York City, um, a gentleman named Dr. Kaplan, who was our, our founding chairman of our board. Um, and uh, we founded the organization together. And he happened to be down in Florida with his daughter, Orianne. And mm. they, she had the opportunity to kind of have a behind-the-scenes look at the zoo. And they put an eastern indigo snake, which we could talk about, but, but I'll just say that they're one of the most amazing snakes we have here in North America, our largest native mm. snake, a snake-eating snake. Um, eastern just, indigo. Yeah, fascinating animals. Okay. And uh, so <clears throat> she had the opportunity to hold one of those. Her father, Dr. Kaplan, he happened to be one of the, the biggest philanthropists in the world for, um, you know, for, for rare cats, things like mm. tigers and, and lions. Mm. And he has another organization uh, that works to save those. And she asked her father, she said, you know, she's holding the snake. And she said, Dad, you know, can I have one of these? Mm. Like as a pet? And this is a little girl? Little girl, young girl, yeah. you know, probably time, I don't remember exact age, let's just say she's in the ballpark of seven years old, somewhere, give okay. or take. And, and he said, um, you know, he, he knows a lot about indigo snakes, very, very knowledgeable, and, and he just, he said, you know, sweetie, just, you know, you can't, that's an endangered species, and it is a species on our, it's a threatened species on our federal endangered species list. He said, you can't, that's a, that's a snake that's declining, it's an endangered species, and, and she turned to her father and she said, Dad, will you do for indigo snakes what you're doing for tigers? Mm. And so, <clears throat> anyways, he was working through WCS mm. on some of the cat projects. And so <clears throat> he tracked me down as a, as a snake ecologist at WCS. And, and uh, the rest is history. We created this mm. organization. We were originally founded to work um, primarily in the southeastern coastal plain. Um, and... Uh, on this snake and some of the animals it depends on. For example, gopher tortoises. It's a tortoise that um, is a great example of one of these keystone species I mentioned. Okay. We can talk about what that this means. This snake eats tortoises. 
Well, the snake will eat some baby tortoises, okay. but it depends on the tortoise because the tortoise digs a hole. And that hole mm. is used by over 300 other species that we in science have documented. From is that right? Game species too, bobwhite quail, um, all kinds of other reptiles, amphibians, mm. mammals, birds. So it's a critically important animal. Wow. So you're probably getting the keystone For digging concept. holes. For digging holes, yeah. yeah. The keystone concept is you pull the keystone out of a door, it all collapses. So you pull the right, gopher tortoise right. out, all those other animals that use that hole have a problem. Oh, wow. But so anyways, we were founded to work down in that area. And we, we built the organization uh, to really do what we call science-fueled boots-on-the-ground conservation. What that means is, is we don't do lobbying we don't do litigation. We don't do mm. advocacy. We do science, and we do things on the ground, tangible things to make a difference. So we, um, we buy land. We do conservation easements on land. We do mm. a lot of habitat restoration work. We do uh, reintroductions of rare reptiles. So we, mm. we have breeding facilities where we breed them and then mm. release them. Um, in the mm. wild to restore populations. We do a lot of inventory monitoring. So real hands-on, tangible yeah. type approaches. And then I'll wrap the, the Orianne piece up just by saying over the last, say, six, seven years, uh, we've been in existence about 11 years now. <clears throat> over the last six or seven years, we expanded our scope um, and we now have three large initiatives in North America, one being that southeastern coastal plain. We have one we call Appalachian Highlands, which is focused on the landscape we're sitting in. Right. It's focused on species like salamanders, timber rattlesnakes, some of the rare turtles. Mm. Um, and we have a program called Great Northern Forests, which we have a, um, is based out of okay. Vermont, but works across that kind of that yeah. transition between the hard, northern hardwood forests and the boreal, that okay. transition area. Yeah. We work on a lot of rare freshwater turtles up there. Wow. So we've expanded over time. We do have, um, we have and have had small projects throughout the western United States, all over the world and other countries. So, mm -hmm. um, but we've kind of followed that same model of how we develop that. That's incredible. That boots on the ground approach. What, tell me about this snake, this, this, what it's a, what's the name of this snake? It's an eastern indigo snake. Now, see, I, I've never even, I've heard of it through you on your social media, mm -hmm. but I would not have known that that snake was down here. Where does that snake live? How big does it get? <clears throat> so the first thing I'd say is, is every, every animal has a Latin name, and its Latin name is Dry Marken Cooperi. And Dry Marken loosely translates into emperor of the forest or king mm. of the forest, and it truly wow. is. This is a giant predatory snake. I like to think of it as like the tiger of the southeastern coastal plain. Mm. So they live in the... It's not venomous? It is not venomous. Okay. It is immune to the venom of the venomous snakes that live in its range because it eats a lot of them. Oh, Wow. It's like a superhero. Um, yeah, there you go. To a lot of people, yeah. It would be. It's, it's a fascinating animal. So it lives in the southeastern coastal plain. Historically, uh, the western edge of its range would have kind of been just into southern Mississippi. And then it comes really? through. It's all the way Al through there. Yeah, and they're no longer in Mississippi. but um, And then it comes, the historic range comes all the way east through southern Alabama, panhandle of Florida. And then it comes up into uh, southeast Georgia and its historic range, we think, kind of ended at about the Savannah River. So mm. there was some debate about whether it was ever in South Carolina. But it's a lowland species, um, oftentimes associated with the longleaf pine ecosystem. But uh, 
but it, it occurs in all types of ecosystems, how especially big, as you get into Florida. How big does it get? So the record, um, and this was an animal that came from the vicinity of the Everglades, uh, extreme South Florida. Uh, the record length is right about eight and a half feet. So, wow. um, and most people are like eight and a half feet. That's not that big of a snake. Oh, that's that, a big snake. That's a big snake. That's the longest. Big around as a average man's forearm. Or yeah, something. a really big male could could be you know have, be about yeah. that size. Yeah, and uh, and they're again they're they're highly predatory. They and because of that, just like any big predator in nature, you know they have a, a giant home range. They have the largest mm. documented home range of any native snake in North America. The really? pythons, of course, have a bigger range, but um, you know so these animals. They, you know, an individual animal in a year is covering thousands and thousands of acres potentially. Mm. And, and they're, uh, you know, they're moving across these coastal plain landscapes mm-hmm. and, and, you know, looking for prey. That's why we call them. What, like, are they, what are they eating? They're eating, well, they're a generalist. So they, they kind of eat anything. Anything that moves, the thing fit in their mouth. Yeah, but about 50% <laughs> of their diet is, is uh, other snakes. So Okay. It, we could get into the 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 evolution of snake skulls, and people don't want to hear me talk about that, so we won't. But I will tell you, there's two <laughs> extremes, and a rattlesnake and an indigo represent those two extremes. You have certain snakes that actually a rattlesnake is like this has a really light skull. There's not a lot of bone. They're real fragile skulls, a lot of soft tissue, and they can open their mouths really, really wide and swallow big things. I see. And then you have other animals like indigo snakes, king snakes would be another mm-hmm. one. You've probably seen king mm-hmm. snakes. That they have a really rigid skull, a lot of muscle, a lot of bone, really powerful, but they can't open their mouths that wide. Okay. And so those snakes over time ha- have evolved that they typically eat more narrow things, like a lot of lizards, a lot of snakes. So mm. indigo snakes are one of them. That's why you, you hear king snakes eat other snakes. They, yep, they do. They're very similar to indigos in that regard. Mm. Mm. Wow. So I didn't mean to interrupt your train of thought there. So uh, this this thing is a snake eater. It's a snake eating snake. It's, it's, About 50% of its diet would be other snakes. And then, you know, everything else there, you know, they eat lizards, they eat you know, they'll eat birds, they'll eat small mammals, they'll eat baby tortoises. And they're immune to rattlesnake, copperhead, water moccasin, venom? Yes, sir. So the we watched one eat an eastern dimeback rattlesnake once. Mm. And um, <clears throat> the indigo snake grabbed this diamondback mid-body. Okay. The diamondback immediately swung around and sunk its fangs into the indigo snake. And then the diamondback released, and the indigo snake proceeded to walk its mouth up the body of the diamondback till it got to the head. Mm. And then it crushed the head with its powerful jaw, and then it just swallowed the diamondback whole. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. So why are these snakes in, uh, in jeopardy? Just is it habitat degradation? Is it people been killing them for two hundred years? I'm sure some people have killed them, but they're an interesting snake, kind of like king snakes, in that in general the the public recognizes them as a good snake. You'll hear a okay, lot kind of like people, a king, yeah, kind of like a king snake. Yeah, so people would 
people would be less apt to kill them. What really is driving it is probably two things. One, the decline of the gopher tortoise, that hole they need mm. in much of their range. They need that hole to survive the winter. And they're really a tropical snake. Their relatives go all the way down into South America. They're kind of like, they got stuck in Southeast North America as it cooled down. And so Hmm. um, they need those tortoise burrows to survive the winter. Hmm. So the decline of the tortoise. What about armadillo holes, man? Armadillos moved in. That won't work for them. Maybe in some places, but they're not deep. These (laughs) (laughs) these tortoise burrows go 20, 30 feet deep. Um, You know, temperatures are very... uh, it's basically the same temperature as the deep soil down there year round. So in the summer, it's it'd be cooler than the air, and then in the winter, it'd be much warmer than the air. Mm. So, anyways, mm. in the winter, they need those. So that's part of it. The other part is linked to this: them being the emperor of the forest, being the tiger of our coastal plains, in that they they to to live out their life, they need to hunt and and travel vast landscapes in our southeastern coastal plain i encourage you to go on google maps or google earth and and just start picking random places in the coastal plain i mean it is it's like the the great plains it's one of the most fragmented converted landscapes out there so these snakes are crossing roads frequently yeah and it seems to be a theme inside of a lot of what's happening probably worldwide but specifically in north america is fragmentation so for everything Mm -hmm. for bears for all kind of stuff when you have man-made fragmentation of large habitats that's problems i mean like for bears in arkansas it would be interstate 40 dividing the washtals and the ozarks yep well these two populations have now pretty much become allopatric is that am i using the right word like separate populations yeah yeah uh, and, and, you know, before that highway was there, they were interbreeding, which would have been better for them. Yeah. Uh, but so what you're saying is that just the intrusion of man building roads, clearing yep. pasture, yep. draining swamps to make cattle pastures or fields or yep. is hurting them. Yeah. So perhaps more than any snake in the southeastern coastal plain, they need big wild landscapes. And and right, you know, right. those are those are, you know, at a premium now in the yeah. southeast. So Yeah. That's incredible. See, I didn't even know about that snake. Um so the the venomous snakes that we would have in the southeast, <clears throat> can I can I try to name them? Okay. Yeah. There's there shouldn't there's not that many. Depends where you are, what you define well, as the southeast. Okay, and I guess I would categorize like I don't know all. Why don't we go with Arkansas? How about that? Well, okay, I know the ones in Arkansas. Okay, because I've had the poster on my wall since <laughs> I was eleven. <laughs> so you can yeah, yeah. get this one right. You no, know, the so the timber rattlesnake, copperhead, water moccasin, coral snake, mm-hmm. uh, the western coral snake, the yeah, Texas coral snake. I yeah, and I've and uh, and then there there are parts of. Arkansas that would overlap the western diamondback which I've never seen one but they claim part of the part of the little circle comes into western Arkansas yep um that would be it wouldn't it uh pygmy pig okay pygmy rattlesnake yes which a lot of people confuse for being baby timber rattlesnakes right because a a full-grown pygmy rattlesnake is actually a very small snake, maybe a, you know, foot and a half, yeah. potentially, maybe a little bigger. But you know, I've never seen a coral snake, but I have seen multiple. Is it false coral snakes? The ones that have the 
backwards color. You there, know, red touch yellow, kill yeah. a fellow. Yeah, so there are, it depends where you are, but there are, uh, there are multiple species in the southeast that could potentially be confused with a coral snake. Another thing I just wanted to back up, relate the coral snake to the indigo, coral snakes are also snakes that eat other snakes and lizards. Okay. Um, but co- coral snakes are interesting in that <clears throat> the bulk of their diversity, most coral snake species are in kind of Central and South America. Mm. And you can go really throughout their range and... Most places that you'll find a coral snake, you will find another snake that is non-venomous that has a similar looking pattern. And so How does that happen? in ecology, we call that m- mimicry. And there's a lot of debate about mimicry in coral snakes. And I don't want to get into that, but I, I will say the thought is that over long periods of time, uh, uh, so a coral snake is a highly venomous animal. Yeah. Um, and so if you look like a very venomous animal. And over long periods of time, predators learn that that's what something dangerous looks like. You know, in theory, even though you're not venomous, those predators would avoid you as well. Would that that's just a gross be, simplification. Would but. that be... Would that be basically just almost by chance over eons that a non-venomous snake would evolve an adaptation of color that that resembled that already solidified snake Mm -hmm. and then he was passed over so that snake bred and then the the next you know so two snakes that kind of looked like that snake bred Mm -hmm. and had offspring and then of all their offspring the ones that looked more like the coral snake were selected by nature to survive and breed. Yep. Am I on the right track? Yeah, I mean, you're, what you're I mean, describing no... essentially is natural selection. Right. And natural selection is, is not much different, really, than, you know, you, you here in this area, you know, it's famous for plot hounds. It's not much different than the creation of plot hounds. That's, I mean, obviously a yeah. human selection, but yeah, it's the yeah. same concept. You, you're selecting for certain characteristics and you're breeding them into an animal yeah. and and the resulting offspring if it's genetically passed on have those characteristics and so it's the same thing with that or other so it's, it's just a highly refined evolution mm-hmm. i mean is that 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 just what we see now looks so intentional yeah i mean like because we you know, like these little coral snakes that I've seen in Arkansas. I never saw a very big one. Well, the the I don't even know what they're called. I call them false coral snakes because yeah. the the colors were reversed. So yeah. a coral snake has this red, yellow, and black. Yep. Yeah. Uh, beautiful. I mean, just an incredible snake. Yep. Yeah. And um, so if the if the colors are a certain, you know, you identify a coral snake based upon the 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 pattern of the colors and yeah, yeah. It's, anyway. it's it's yeah it's fascinating people have come up with all these rhymes you, you mentioned yeah. one so yeah i mean it's an interesting natural selection process and i'm not trying to um i just want to state i'm not trying to offend any any of your listeners you'll hear me talk a lot about evolution and natural selection and i mean to me um to me there natural selection is is you know, I mean, it's it's fact. It's something that's happened. I'm not making any statement about how life was created yes, or any of that. Yes. But, I mean, we see. I talked about plot, plot hounds. I mean, we know that animals right. are created right. by either human processes or natural processes. We just, it happens in nature. Yeah. We've seen it. So, I'm not trying to offend anybody. Hey, you, I, you know what? This is a great creation. place, and we don't have to talk about this, but I am a 
Bible-believing creationists, and I absolutely believe in, I mean, I have no problem looking at natural selection and yep. certain processes inside evolution that just are yep. science that, yeah, they're that not, make they're, sense. They're not mutually exclusive. And yeah. I think if, if you are a, a Bible-believing Christian, as you mentioned, you don't have to be afraid of natural yeah. selection. And if you're right. someone who believes in natural selection and evolution, you don't have to be afraid of, of the other side that's either. Right. So. right. Yeah. They, they, they that's can, a great, you know, yeah, that's a great, that's a great thing to say because I'm, I'm with you. Sometimes saying the, the E word mm-hmm. in some parts of the world yeah. But I've, I've never been afraid of that. That is not a statement. Uh, I'm not saying anything about God or religion. You know, they, yeah. they could, in my mind, they could potentially both exist. Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, rattlesnakes. Rattlesnakes, yeah. Rattlesnakes. My favorite. Timber rattlesnakes. Favorite? All the rattlesnakes are, are one of my favorite animals on the planet. And timber rattlesnakes are, are uh, probably my favorite. Yeah, rattlesnake, and probably my favorite animal on the planet. So, what would the the common names that I've heard of timber rattlers in Arkansas would be? uh, Velvet tail. Mm -hmm. Is that? Do you hear that? I don't hear that here, but there's a lot of names and a lot of regionalized names. So, timber rattlesnake is a wide ranging animal. It is truly like America's rattlesnake. It's it's America's rattlesnake. It it. I mean, it was on our flags in the American Revolution. We mm. people like Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin wanted this animal to be our 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 national symbol. Imagine if mm. if there was a timber rattlesnake everywhere instead of a bald eagle. But that's what <laughs> what, what he wanted. He was also yeah. you know people have heard about the turkey as well. But he yeah. was a big proponent. There's some great quotes, and the mm. reason is. Um, you know, and we also used it on the flags. You see, those flags have been revived uh, lately. You know, the yellow flags with the "Don't tread, don't on tread me. on me." That's a timber rattlesnake, and and those flags there are multiple, but those were used back in the times around the American Revolution to symbolize, you know, just that that dedication and that independence that that we here in the Americas had, and and as we fought for our independence from. You know, yeah. from England. So, yeah. so it's, uh, it is America's snake. And, and part of that is it's, it's kind of the dominant snake in the Eastern United States. It goes all yeah. the way historically from Maine down into North Florida. And then it goes West into the, the kind of Northern Midwest. You can find it in States like Minnesota and Wisconsin. Um, yeah. It's pretty rare in those places. And then it goes all the way down through Arkansas, Oklahoma, and places like Texas, and it starts yeah. to its range starts to peter out in yeah. there. Um, yeah. So it's a uh, very wide-ranging snake. Um, <clears throat> it's the rattlesnake that you know probably most Americans encounter when they encounter a rattlesnake, just because yeah. of the, the human populations. And it has a lot of different names. The two big common ones that you hear are timber rattlesnake, obviously, and canebrake rattlesnake. Canebrake. Okay. And. Uh, in what the, in my part of the world, meaning more on the Atlantic side, that really comes from <clears throat> the, the two things: that the snake looks different. It's the same species, but it looks different in different places. Mm. Um, and it's a hardwood forest-associated snake. So when you're in the mountains like this, it, it, it's kind of everywhere. You know, I mean, yeah. it's it's it, it can it lives in this whole landscape because it's a hardwood-dominated landscape. Um, would, and they could call you them, could you would you say that it's an eastern deciduous forest in fringe and fringe so two things eastern deciduous forest and then kind of the fringe of that snake I mean is that the kind of the biome the, the, that it lives in the, the, the 
Yeah, I mean, that's the, the dominant... Maybe that's not a good description. The dominant part of its range would be in the eastern deciduous forest. But then, like, as it gets west out into, you know, some places, say, like, Texas, Oklahoma, it is going to be more associated with kind of, you know, your your hardwood draws. But the cane okay. break, say, let's take Georgia, where I live. So you've got the mountains, and you've got that hardwood forest, and the... The timber rattlesnakes there, they, they look, first of all, they're, they're smaller than the canebrake, and they come mm. in two color morphs. They're either yellow, and they can be bright yellow, or they're black, and they can be bright black, or they can mm. be somewhere in between. But usually it's pretty easy to characterize them. Oh, that's a yellow morph, or that's a black morph. Mm. And then as you get more into the lowlands of the southeast, they start to take on a different look. They're bigger. They're typically kind of like grayish. They might have a little pink hue to them at yeah, times. Yeah. Um, and people call them cane breaks. And as you get down into... Same species. Same species, genetically. Yeah. And as you get down like into the coastal plain, say of Georgia, if you think about where your hardwoods are, they're more in the bottoms, more where you'd get plant, you'd get cane breaks, you'd get switch cane right. and other yeah. things like they that. They named it because that's where they were finding them. Yeah, that's where they're seeing them. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, timber rattlesnakes come up into pine forests and do other yeah, things yeah. too. But but generally, you find them more associated with hardwood forests, and that's why yeah. in the coastal plain they're more associated with kind of the wet, swampy hardwood areas. Mm. Again, it's generalization, but how how big can a timber rattler get? So uh, I don't remember the record off the top of my head. It certainly would be a, a, a coastal plain form, a canebrake form. Um, here in the mountains, you know, we we I'd spend a lot of time in the field monitoring their populations, and you know, a, really a four foot rattlesnake would be a really big one. Yeah, I mean they can get bigger than that too, but right, you know, right. all these stories you hear about, you get it more with diamondbacks, but but like. You'll see all these pictures, you know, you get this forced perspective like fishermen do where somebody's got a snake on a hook and yeah, they and hold they, it out four and feet. it looks and, like an eight-foot snake. Yeah, and, and so like eastern diamondbacks, for example, which are the, the biggest rattlesnake in the world, western diamondbacks being a mm. close second, um, easterns, I can't remember the exact record, but it's somewhere in the ballpark of seven feet long. Really? But you'll see all these social media things, you know, some some dead eastern diamondback, and they're talking about a 16, 17-foot snake. Yeah. It's just, I mean, that would be like seeing a, you know, 2,000-pound bear or something. You know yeah, it's, I mean? not, so. it's just not true. <laughs> so, where, where, are the eastern, where are the eastern diamondbacks? So this is another interesting myth with snakes in general. It's because of these common names. Like, it's it, it gets perpetuated that, that there are all these different snakes in all these different places. So you hear a lot of people say, oh, diamondback rattlesnakes. You hear a lot of people say water moccasins or cottonmouths in places where those snakes don't even occur. Um, mm. And with a diamondback, it could be, for example, a timber rattlesnake that somebody's seeing. Uh, with a cottonmouth, there are a lot of cottonmouths. They have a pretty wide range as well. You certainly would have them in Arkansas. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of places they don't occur. But if anybody, I, I'm generalizing again, but if a lot of people see a snake in the water, they oftentimes think it's a cottonmouth. Right. And um, in, most, in many places, cottonmouths don't exist. And then even in places like the southeast, there's a lot of water snake species. A lot of water snakes. And, uh, yeah. so, and they're actually pretty easy to tell apart. Um, yeah. In terms of IDing, I'll get back to your original question with Eastern Diamondbacks. But 
one thing I tell people, I always get all these questions about identifying venomous snakes. And I do a lot of presentations around the country on snake safety and snake identification. And, and I've kind of gotten to the point, maybe I'm a little jaded, but you know, I can go through all these details. I can tell you what a rattlesnake's eye looks like. I can tell you what, uh, you know, what the, the particular shape of this, and, but they're all real fine characteristics. I and mean, the mm. rattle's a good one, but not all rattlesnakes have their rattles. And we can talk about that too. But, but I've gotten to the point where, especially when I'm talking to hunting groups now, where I put up a picture of a mule deer and a white-tailed deer. And, you know, I basically say, if you're concerned, like if you're going on a deer hunt and say you only have a white-tailed tag, but mule deer and, and white-tail overlap in that right. area, you just need to know the difference. And there's, yeah. and, and, you know, obviously the antlers are much different, but there's differences in the body size, sometimes color. Like, you just know the difference. And when I look at these snakes, they simply look different. And if you're yeah. concerned, let's say you're a waterfowl hunter in Arkansas, and you're concerned about cottonmouths, just learn what a cottonmouth looks like yeah. versus a water snake. And I'm not trying to, it, it's, it's easy. That's what I'm telling you. It's as yeah, easy. it's not hard. But the problem is with snake identification, as with many things with snakes, is when people, many people see a snake, they lose their minds. <laughs> they, their minds literally stop functioning properly. Yeah. Yeah. And if you realize, don't get me wrong, if you step on a snake, you should be concerned, and, and you should immediately try to get away from that. But most people, people need to realize that most venomous snakes, to get bit by them, you literally need to almost touch them. They don't strike that far. You have to put right. your hand on them. You have to put your foot on them. You have yeah. to put it within six inches. Yeah. Then you, you need to be concerned. But if you see a snake 10 feet away, remain so no, calm. No problem. Yeah. Don't lose your mind. And you can, you can make very logical decisions like, yeah. oh, that looks like a whitetail versus a mule deer or a yeah. cottonmouth versus a water snake. So um, I, I oftentimes, when I'm talking about snake safety, one of the best things people can do is remain calm, and that helps in identification. And if you can properly identify a snake, um, that's the first step to safety because most snakes you encounter um, will not be venomous. You know... <laughs> What do you think about uh so here here's the scenario with killing snakes and and I can say I know for sure you know, a person doesn't need to be killing snakes out in the woods ever the only what about a snake that's in your yard mm -hmm. you got a, let's say you got a four foot timber rattler in your yard I had the, a good friend of mine in Arkansas that lives in I'm not going to say the city he lives in but a a big city in Arkansas mm -hmm. lives in the suburbs um, he walked out of his house back in the fall and there was a monster timber rattler in his driveway. And I mean, he's got a yep. seven year old daughter and yep. his wife. Yep. He, that snake didn't fare very well. Yeah. So what, what do you think about that? So I'll tell you the, the legality of it versus my personal opinion. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the legality, the first thing I tell everybody relative to snakes is like other wildlife, there are laws in each state. And you should just, you know, brush up on those if you're concerned. And they vary from like some state like Pennsylvania that has a hunting season for them, okay. which and they've actually done it relatively well in terms of how they administer it, um, to other states where like Georgia, where they, so they're excluded. These, so these snakes aren't no, federally protected, uh, like rattlesnakes. Well, there are some species of rattlesnakes like massasaugas and... Um, 
New Mexico ridge-nosed rattlesnakes, which okay, are so federally protected. And there would and there would be certain states, certain species in certain states that are state protected. Like for example, eastern diamondback rattlesnakes in okay. North Carolina um, would be protected heavily at a state level, or timber okay. rattlesnakes if you go up into some of these northeastern states. So I just know the laws around it. Um, typically, if if it's in your yard, in most states, even states where you know, say, killing a rattlesnake would be the equivalent of like shooting a robin with a shotgun. You know, it's a wildlife violation, but it's not. You're not like. It's not some big endangered species okay, um, I see. type violation. Even in those states, typically, I, I, I can't speak for anyone, but I would expect that in most states, most wardens um, wouldn't persecute that type of thing. Yeah, I don't know. Some places, they right, might. right, right. Um, they pers- could though. They could. The, the, in I mean, some states, depending right. on the laws, they, I'm pretty sure in in Arkansas, rattlesnakes are protected. Yeah. 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 I'm not sure the exact laws in Arkansas and Georgia, they're not. Right. They're like a precluded species. So um, you can do anything you want with as many rattlesnakes as you want. Really? Wallpaper your house with their skins. Well, I mean, we're working on changing some of that. We just want rattlesnakes. Rec- not, I'm not trying to say no rattlesnake should ever die. I'm just trying to say yeah. they should be considered wildlife. Like That's surprising species. to me. So, yeah. Um, but my personal philosophy is well, first I'll tell you, I live in a very rural part of these mountains and. I have venomous snakes in my yard every year. I have snakes mm. that try to use places on my house as their gestation sites. <laughs> this so is like a like, dream <laughs> for you, though, man. Yeah, yeah. But I also I have dogs, and um, I have two young kids that love to run around barefoot. And I've had one of my bird dogs, you know, get a copperhead bite to the face, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I'll tell you, I, I don't want them in my front yard either. Um, of course, I have the expertise... You know, I can physically move Catch them. Catch them and move them. Yeah, I move them back into the yeah. forest. Um, and in many places, um, especially as you get into a suburban environment like that, there are groups, whether it be a government group or like wildlife rescues, that provide those types of services that will so come and come move catch an it for animal. You. Yes. Yeah. I would, um, and, and that's a very localized thing that I can't speak to outside sure. of my area, but um, that's something that, that could be researched in the, in the places that yeah. everybody lives. Um, so uh, I'm not going to tell you what to do or what not to do. I'll tell you to look at the laws. I will tell you that that's, I don't want a snake in my front yard biting my child or my dog. And I yeah. can understand, you know, translocation or doing something to deal with that animal within, you know, the, the confines of the law. Yeah. And I'll leave that at that. But I, but, and, and I don't have issue with that. What I have issue with is when people go into these beautiful wild places and they, you know, say they're out in the Ozark national forest miles from anyone, they see a rattlesnake and, and they, take it upon themselves to, to kill this animal. Right. And, and you're going into its home. Um, all you have to do is walk around that animal. You'll yeah. never see it again in your life. And I've, I've yeah. been called out before because, as you know, I'm an avid hunter. I mean, I hunt a lot. And yeah. I've hunted all over the country, other countries. <clears throat> um, and, and people call me out on that. But there's a big difference. Big difference. We manage our game species using a biological approach 
that, that we've set up goals to maintain their populations over long periods of time, whether it's you can only harvest a male of a given species. You have certain season dates, certain right. places you can hunt. Right. It's managed very intensively. But with snakes, it, it's not managed like that. And in my mind, if we go into wild places and kill every venomous snake that we see, but at the same time, we're not taking the biological information we have about those animals and setting up a management plan to do that, um, then I can't support it. It's, yeah. it's, it'd, be like, it'd be like if it was open season on bears. You know I mean? Right. I, year round, I'm going to go in the woods in these Everyone these I see, I'm going to kill. I'm going to every, kill everyone I see. Yeah. And, and people would be up in arms about it. And so I get up in arms about yeah. people who go do that because rattlesnakes... Um, whether you like them or not, are are an important component to many ecosystems across North America. And yeah. just like any other animal, if you take them out of that equation, there's going to be a lot of um, impacts. And there's social values and aesthetic values. There's a lot of values to snakes. Absolutely. And the and the true risk posed to people is so so minuscule. Mm-hmm. You know. So mm-hmm. later today, I'm going to get back to my office. Um, and I do need to, I need to take a couple of rattlesnakes out and clean their cages. I'm going to, so later today, I'm going to be handling a six foot giant diamondback rattlesnake. Mm. I'm going to be handling multiple <laughs> timber rattlesnakes. And by far the most dangerous thing I will have done today is driven here to see you. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's a, like a horrific thing that, that scares people. Um, I'm, I'm kind of going on a tangent or soapbox, hey, and I apologize. We but, are, but I, I, I'm I, on the exact same page. I would encourage people to figure out what to do when the snakes are in your home. What's the best way for you to deal with that? Because there yeah. are avenues out there. And then I would encourage people to leave the snakes alone when you're in their home. Yeah, absolutely. Man, that's, you know, what you said that, that snakes have cultural value and, and wildlife value. I think what my dad captured years ago, I mean, when I was just a boy in the 80s, was that seeing a rattlesnake means it was a good day. You know, yeah. I mean, going to a wild place and it would it would have been classified with a, seeing a bear yeah. or finding a big shed horn in the mountains yeah. or seeing a rattlesnake or seeing a hornet's nest. I'm, I'm thinking of the things as a kid that would just have made something exciting. And a rattlesnake would have probably been at the top of that list. Yeah, they're I mean, a special animal. He sounds like a, a smart, great man. So, um, yeah, it's when I moved here, you know, I, I'd lived in the Rockies and I'd lived very close to grizzly bear country and mountain lions and wolves and, and uh, a lot of these big predators. And we had rattlesnakes, obviously. And, and I knew it was a wild place. Yeah. And, I, I kind of like that idea. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want to get attacked by a grizzly bear, but I like that concept. When you're out in the woods, there are things in nature yes. that, that can hurt you. There are predatory animals. And when I moved here, it, it, it seemed like somewhat of a benign landscape to some degree, but it, it made me feel really good that we did still have some animals like bears and like rattlesnakes. Something, something dangerous. Yeah, I mean, That's they're out there. That's a mystery. Yeah, I, I do not want to get bit by a rattlesnake. I don't want you know, my friends, family, I don't want anybody to get bit by a rattlesnake. But um, they're an important component out there. And, yeah. and if you're smart in snake country, your chances are incredibly low. You know, in all the tromping around that I've done, which, you know, my upbringing would have been similar to so many people that just spent their whole 
lives beating around in places that their moms probably told them not to go one time. And, and I have gone out of my way to intentionally catch snakes more in my younger years than now. Only one time have I been struck at and actually hit by a venomous snake. Now, I've been bit by lots of non-poisonous, but it was because yeah. I was messing with them. Uh, but one time on total accident, I stepped on about a 14-inch copperhead mm-hmm. in October, mid-October, which usually it's cold enough that they're not out that much. Yep. And uh, stepped on him just like mid-body. And, uh, well, it may have been more if he was – it wasn't a big snake. And anyway, I just remember – just looking down about the time I stepped on him and he just reached around and just tapped my boot. Uh, and it, I was wearing a big pair of rubber boots. There was no way that yeah. it was going to penetrate that. Yeah. But it was kind of a marker in my mind that of all these years, that's the one time. Mm-hmm. All that time you spent. If I'd have been barefoot, I'd have been in trouble. Yep. But how often am I barefoot in the woods? Never. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, a lot of exposure. Have you ever been... Not, I mean, like totally on accident, bit by, bit yeah, by a snake. So, I, ha- I first of all, I've never been envenomated mm-hmm. by a venomous snake, and I've literally, no exaggeration, I've probably had ten thousand handling experiences, mm-hmm. and I spend an incredible amount of time in the woods, like you, both hunting, fishing, hiking, recreating, as well as for work. I've over the years, I've spent a lot of time yeah. out looking for snakes. I've never been envenomated. Um, the closest, well, I'll tell you, by far the most dangerous thing that you can do with a rattlesnake is try to handle it. And I don't care yeah. if you're trying to catch it and bring it to show somebody, if you're trying to kill it, and to do that, you're getting real close. It's when you engage the rattlesnake in one way or another, yeah. that's when things get dangerous for you. Yeah. Um, so I've handled, as I mentioned, probably had 10,000-ish handling events. Mm. And um I will say, I won't go through all the stories, but I've probably had four or five very close encounters while handling a snake, right. but still never was bit. Um, I was struck by a timber rattlesnake uh, a few years ago now. I was back in a, a real remote area, the southern Nantahala wilderness, um, and I was doing rattlesnake surveys <clears throat> in the summer looking for uh, these gestation sites where the females give birth. And anyway, so I was, but I had finished the survey and I was on a mission. I had miles to get out of there. And so I was just hiking and I'd, I'd come up to a, a giant old, old growth tree that had died and fallen over. And so there was only a two or three feet of, of room underneath it. Mm. And so to stay on the trail and, and I didn't want to change my pace. I'm going to like run through the woods. So I'm yeah. walking. And so I just quickly drop down my hands and knees and kind of do like a bear shuffle under uh, it real quick and stand up. And there were a bunch of chestnut oak saplings covering the trail on the other side of it. And my first step, once I got my hands off the ground, my first step was right on a very large four-foot-ish timber no rattlesnake. And wow. I felt something squishy. And I looked down and I hear the rattle and then I launch in the air. And that snake at the same time turns and strikes me in the shin, mm. and um, and I got away from the snake, and and luckily, I was wearing snake gaiters. Yeah, because you were on a snake, yeah, a snake hunt, and I often wear them hunting, especially turkey season. Um, there's certain times I wear them, certain times I don't. Yeah. But 
you know, I wear these real lightweight, they're called turtle skin snake gators. Yeah. I, I bring them all over the world. I'll roll them up and bring them to the Amazon or I'll fly into the Frank Church in Idaho with them. Mm. And, and they're just real convenient. They work well. I have the proof. I've got the photos where you can see on my leg, you can see the v- twin venom wow. marks and the drops coming down it that we took that picture right after it. So that was well, like, that would have been life threatening because I was. Um, I was miles from the truck. Well, so that brings I've got two main two questions. I, I want to talk talk about uh, rattlesnake populations. I want to tell you this before I forget it, and I also want to talk about uh, what snake venom does to you. Like how like would that have would you have died back there if mm-hmm. you were four miles from the truck and by yourself and mm-hmm. got bit in a pretty vital spot. Yep. Um, so those two questions, you can answer the venomous part first. Like, well, l- l- first of all, let me say this, my anecdotal understanding of like a copperhead, like I've always felt like if I get bit by a copperhead, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, yep. just not that big of a deal. Yep. I've even had the, I've even heard of people, not going to the hospital when they got bit by a copperhead, which is probably extreme. But you you hear that rattlesnake venom is more potent than copperhead venom. Is that true? So and if you're comparing a timber rattlesnake and a copperhead, yes, that is true. So the the first thing I'll tell you, well, the first thing I'll tell you is that with snake bites in the United States, that 25 to 50% of snake bites, the snakes don't actually inject venom. We call them dry bites. So snakes, mm. uh, first thing I'll tell you about venom is snakes have venom for a reason. Snakes did not evolve venom to kill people. Um, so not every time they strike is venom they can, coming out They the can slangs. control the delivery of venom to some degree. Okay. And... Again, they, they need it for other things. They use it for feeding. and for they're and killing stuff they're going to eat. It, it kills things. It allows them to not have to wrestle with their prey. They inject venom. They're only in touch with it for a split second. And then that prey runs off and dies. And the interesting thing, what I, what I find very interesting, is that then the snake goes and has to find that prey, which could be very difficult. It's like and, bow hunting. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> Shoot it and it runs off and you got to yeah. find it. So, and, and the snakes are following a scent trail. But they're not, they're not following the mammal's scent trail because there's mammal trails everywhere. This has been done in the lab this, many times. Mm. Shows, they are actually tracking the scent of their own venom to wow. find that prey item. That's and, incredible. And then most mm. venoms have the characteristics, and we'll talk about some different species here in a minute, but most venoms in this part of the world have some characteristics of uh, like digestive enzymes. And so it's digesting the prey from the inside out while the snake is digesting it from the outside in. So it allows them to eat bigger prey items that would normally take mm. a lot longer to digest. So they need the venomous point. And 25 to 50% of bites on humans are dry bites. So you start really? with that. So you get bit by a poisonous snake and it not... A venomous snake, yeah. <laughs> I did it. I said it. <laughs> no, I just yeah, came yeah, Get bit by a venomous snake... <laughs> And you don't have that much trouble, and you think you're like superhuman because it didn't hurt you that bad, but it was a dry bite. Yes. Does that happen? Um, I don't know about someone feeling superhuman, but <laughs> I would. If I was out hunting and got bit by a snake, and I was just like, ah, don't worry about yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Um, I'd feel pretty cool. 
But, but <laughs> the, the other thing I'd tell you about venoms before we talk about, like, say, a copperhead and a timber rattlesnake is that they vary really incredibly. So they're very, these diverse cocktails and, and they're, you know, different species have, can have very, very different venoms that impact the body in different ways. And mm. even within a species, the timber rattlesnake's a good example. You can go to different parts of the species range and the, the venom has different properties, would be wow. more, say, toxic in some cases and, and others. For example, you know, there's a, a part of the range, kind of in like southwest Georgia, Florida, Alabama, where, um, if I remember correctly, that it, they have a, a lot of very kind of neurotoxic, um, which mm. means it affects your nervous system. So a lot of snakes, especially coral snakes are one, but then a lot of snakes in other parts of the world have these neurotoxins, which can be very deadly because they do things like your body can't tell your heart to beat or your lungs uh, to your mm. diaphragm to, to fill your lungs. Mm. So, um, but in general, <clears throat> this is a gross generalization, but most rattlesnakes, not all, some have more neurotoxic components or cytotoxins, but most, are, are, most of the venoms are, are kind of like digestive enzymes in, in mm. North America, but they vary in toxicity. So you're right. A copperhead um, is a very minor bite as compared to and a it's timber because of the It's because of the venom, not because of the size of the animal. Because that's what I've thought too, is a, is a rattlesnake just injecting more venom than a copperhead because it's bigger. So drop for drop, the rattlesnake venom would be more toxic. Okay, than a that answers my question. Most rattlesnakes would be bigger than most copperheads, so right. actually physically have more venom as well. Okay, so you're back in the mountains. You know, in this part of the world, it's hard to get four or five miles from the road, two miles from the road, you know, 30, 40-minute tough walk. You get bit by a rattlesnake. How long do you – I mean, you're not going to die from that. You might. Really? Oh, yeah. You could. Yeah, you might. Uh so first of all, let's rule out anything that would be very um, rare, like an allergy or something. Like if you had okay. an allergy to something and you go into anaphylactic shock, you die right. Typically, yeah, yeah. people were actually had more allergies to the old antivenoms and would die from that. The new ones are better. But, but anyway, so if you rule that out, just um, a, a rattlesnake bite in a very remote area, um, a timber rattlesnake bite, say in these mountains, yes, could be very, very serious and, and could be really? life-threatening. I mean, would it depend on where it hit you? Um, certainly. So that's, I can't answer that question perfectly because there's so many variables. Where did it get you? Um, did it inject venom right into like an artery or a vein? Yeah. Did it go right into a muscle? Was it on your hand? Was it on your face? Um, how much venom did it inject? There's a lot of variables. There's a lot of variables. Lots of variables. But, uh, but the one thing I can tell you is that even with a timber rattlesnake, if you get to the hospital, your chances of dying are low. But a, a timber rattlesnake is a life threatening bite potentially See, life for me to hear because a I've copperhead been... is is um I, you i would recommend anybody go to the hospital but um <laughs> but i would recommend anybody go to the hospital but it's not as life-threatening i i don't know for example in georgia where we have a lot of copperheads i don't know of of any 
records of anybody ever dying from a copperhead. And okay. somebody might correct me on that, but, yeah. but it's, it's not common. Whereas timber rattlesnakes, there are multiple. There was one in my county a few years ago. Yeah. So there are timber rattlesnakes. Really, are somebody died from a rattlesnake in your county? Oh, yeah. Is yeah. that right? Mm-hmm. That's surprising to me. Yeah, people die every year in the United States from rattlesnake bites. Hmm. Now, why would you – know, we don't have to – go too deep into this but it seems to me like a, a rattlesnake he's trying to kill critters maybe as big as a rabbit to eat yeah why would he need venom that would kill a 200 pound man um that's a that's a good question and i don't think i can answer it exactly but um it's like he's shooting a 338 on a on a on a squirrel hunt yeah this would be it's <laughs> <laughs> a good analogy but that this would be complete speculation but again to me it probably would get down to those feeding functions um meaning whatever they're eating they want to die relatively quickly because then okay. they have a greater chance of finding it also there's a greater venom signature exact same and, thing if you shot a 338 on a squirrel hunt you just want it to <laughs> die quick yeah and then um also you know, the more of that venom that is in that animal's body, the quicker it's going to digest. So you could, in theory, eat bigger meals. Okay, so it's it, that venom is working from the inside out, yep. digesting yep. that, just turning its insides into mush. Yeah, but so that's that, speculation. I can't speak to okay. the, the evolution of that. But in general, I will say m- snakes in North America, um, their venoms are, are for feeding. They're not for defense. But we do have, like, okay. for example, if you take, like, you heard of Gila monsters in the yes. southwest? These these lizards, these venomous yeah. lizards. That's a defensive venom. Okay. I have I have one of these in my office, and um, you know it's funny. People say <laughs> you got a Gila monster in your office. <laughs> that people say that you know you're not going to die from a Gila monster bite unless you happen to have a gun nearby because it's it's a mm. defensive venom. Meaning they as they get it into you, they don't have fangs, but as they they chew on you and it kind of comes out of their gums but as they get it into you it's immediate extreme pain because it's functioning mm. in defense that animal wants to survive quick. it's got to work quick and wants that quick. predator to be like oh my god this is not a good thing to eat yeah um but most uh snake venoms in north america are for feeding and that that makes a ton of sense and okay. your first question you have the venom question I okay can't remember the, your first the second thing and, and we'll we can kind of end on this so when i'm hunting out in the mountains mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, let me, uh, the question is about how many rattlesnakes are on the side of the mountain. Mm-hmm. But let me tell you this first. Um, part, one of the regions that I hunt is, is very rocky, like very rocky. Um, there's old uh, remnants of when the, the Ouachita Mountains were super high and there were avalanches. And they, we have these things they call rock glaciers which you'll be totally forested, but you'll come into a big opening that is nothing but boulders half the size of your car. No That's trees. Good. And it's, it, it's, it's remnants of avalanche shoots when the mountains were way taller. Okay. So just rock piles, no trees. Um, one time we were, we were actually baiting bears in a place that we had to walk backpack in bear bait. And uh, just so happened we couldn't get there during the daytime, so we had to hike back in there at night. And me and my old buddy James Lawrence, it was a long walk back in there, hiked in, and we had to cross two rock glaciers to get to this real secluded bear bait on private land. It was a piece of landlocked private land. And, man, we don't see a lot of rattlesnakes. I mean, you just don't see them. 
even though I think we're in really good rattlesnake country, you don't see them a lot. Buddy, we saw rattlesnakes at night on those rock glaciers, mm-hmm. um, multiple snakes. Yep. And, uh, we were, and the way we described, thought about it was we had just taken a straight line, probably three-quarters of a mile through the woods with what our headlights could shine on the ground. And we saw we saw two rattlesnakes, mm-hmm. which was a big deal. I mean, we see two rattlesnakes a year. Yeah. And so on this walk in, we saw two rattlesnakes, and they were up on top of these rocks. Yep. Just doing their thing. <clears throat> so, my question is, our question was, well, how many rattlesnakes are there? And we started doing the math, you know. So if we if we walked three quarters of a mile and could see ten feet, and there were two rattlesnakes, so that times five hundred for the side of that mountain. Does that mean there's a thousand rattlesnakes between here and there? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) So I would say, like everything, uh, that's very complex. I'm not going to be able to answer it exactly. But let me start out kind of in, you know, the Blue Ridge here, which is probably somewhat similar to the Ozarks and the Washita's. So... Uh, my, how do you pronounce it? Am I pronouncing it? Washed, you did it awesome. Washed okay. Washed so, Not like that other guy, that Steve Rinella guy. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> who calls it the Oachitas. <laughs> so, um, so first of all, where I live, and I'm guessing it's probably similar where you live, but I might be wrong, is that copperheads are common. So copperheads are one of the most common snakes where I live. And I'm assuming they're fairly common where yeah. you live. Um, so that's the most commonly encountered venomous snake where I live, and in many places where both timber rattlesnakes and copperheads live. Um, with both of them, but in particular with timber rattlesnakes, there's, there's as we've talked about with other things, there's a lot of variables. So uh, first thing I'm going to tell you is that people just see snakes, and they think of them as like this, like, vermin it's like they, yeah. they don't they're just vermin this thing mentality. that are everywhere and they don't have a biology rattlesnakes have a very interesting ecology in where they are at, at what time of year and for what reasons mm. um, so uh, in most cases i would expect that where you're hunting and where i live that rattlesnakes are not as common as copperheads there probably are places where there there are but <clears throat> and and they're using very particular places at very particular times of the year. And I'll, I'll just generalize. Would have to be chasing food source. Part of the year. And nesting. Some of the snakes, some of the year. So I'm going to try to do this very quickly. But so these animals are, are what we call ectotherms, or you commonly hear the term cold-blooded. Cold Scientists blood. don't like the word cold blood. It's kind of like poisonous versus venomous, okay, but we yeah, won't get yeah. into that Ectotherms, I like it. So they're ectotherms, like we're endotherms. And all that means, endo is inside. We produce our heat physiologically. Okay. Snakes get their heat from the outside world. Okay. So <clears throat> Seems kind of lazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> A lot of animals do, fish, insects. Um, but anyway, so that means in the winter they need to go somewhere, right. um, and and typically underground, oftentimes in the types of places you're describing. Yeah. So, and sometimes those will be kind of communal, so you have a good number of snakes in a certain place. Mm. Um, so if you are in the, well, let me let me finish this, and then I'll, so then they come out in the spring, depending where you are, and a group of them go out to forage. So males and non-gravid females, females that are not going to give birth that year. Timber rattlesnakes in most places would not give birth every year. Sometimes it can be up to four or five years between mm. pregnancies. 
So that. those animals that are going to feed, the males and the non-grav females, they go out typically in a, a pretty linear, like a true migration, like a duck or an elk would make. Really? Long distance movements, relatively linear at a relatively high rate. And they hmm. go out and then they set up these... Now they're not staying together. Um, they're just kind of going the same They're not direction. going out in like a pack. No, I mean, yeah. you can find snakes together. Is there together a name and, for a group of snakes? Like a, like a, you know, like a covey of quail? Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to okay. it. I should know the answer to it if anybody did. So uh, I should look that. I, I don't know. Because I've we, never we heard of, I've never heard of a group of snakes like yeah, what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... <clears throat> So these animals go out, but typically they're going in all kinds of directions, and they're finding a foraging ground. They spend most of their summer in a in a core feeding ground, just like a wolf would move down yeah. to a winter range and have and it, a core and it, feeding. It would be where there was a lot of rodents, or yeah. And at that, okay, and then the other group are the gravid females, the ones that are going to give birth that year. Gravid, gravid, gravid with a T, with a D, gravid. As in David, yeah. that means that ability to give birth that year. Yeah. Viable females for that year. Yes. So, and they go typically a shorter distance. These other snakes can go miles to those feeding mm. grounds. The, the, these gravid females go typically a shorter distance, and they go to very particular places. It's usually rock on rock. It's oftentimes exposed to the sun. Um, basically, they're going somewhere where they can keep a high body temperature day and night. They can shuttle in and out, keep a high body temperature, and then at night that rock that they're on has a very certain geometry and um, and that rock is giving off heat at night so they can also keep their body temperature high at night and they're finishing again their ectotherms so their body temperature changes with the environment and and everything our body does changes with temperature we just don't think about it because we're always the same temperature yeah so you know to speed up the development of a baby or to digest food or whatever it might be you raise your body temperature if you're a snake. Mm. So these females go there. So even in the summer when it's warm, even the like, summer when it's so I mean they need to they need rocks to stay warm even when it's getting down to seventy degrees at night and ninety degrees during the day. I always thought the warm temperature stuff would have just been at these fringe times, like in the spring and fall. When uh, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, it's. It, well, so first of all, these gravid females are maintaining relatively high body temperatures for a snake. I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head. Um, but, and certainly during the day in a warm climate, these gravid females, you know, they're going to come out and warm up to a good temperature, but they're going to have some type of but retreat. I They'll guess go what I'm the saying, shade. they don't have to warm up if it's 80 degrees air temperature <laughs> at night. That's my question. Or do they want to be out in the sun on a... 90 degrees. Well, that day. rock's going to be giving off more heat. So, like by the morning, that rock's going to be relatively cool. And if they stay under that, they're not going to warm as quickly. They can go sit out in that sun coming up, get warm up, and then they can move into the shade. I mean, okay. I, 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 I can't I say what exactly what they do in terms yeah. of each snake might be slightly different, but they're, what they're doing is they're thermoregulating or they're yes. regulating their temperature and their goal is to stay high. And if that means sitting in the sun at a particular time, great. If that means going into shade. Um, and then in mountainous environments, typically it's rock that gives that at night. But there are other places. You go into like the coastal plain stuff. First of all, there's not a lot of rock, but oftentimes they're using stump holes in other areas. Mm. Um, and some of it may have to do with exactly what you're saying. So. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, so, and then late in the season, 
the, the birthing season and the mating season for timber rattlesnakes is actually at the same time, which seems kind of odd, but I've told you that not all different fem- females are being bred. Yeah, exactly. And then they store the sperm. Because if you think about it, then they're going to go back into hibernation. So okay. they store the sperm. Is it like delayed implantation like a bear? So the, the f- females are developing these follicles over long periods of time. And then they store the sperm. They go into hibernation. The year that they're going to give birth, those gravid females, as they call them, when they come out, they ovulate and they fertilize those follicles. So okay. they're storing the sperm. They're developing these follicles, their zygote, the, the, the bundle of energy yeah. um, inside of them. And then they're right. fertilizing them that year they're going to give birth. Okay. Fascinating. Okay. It's slightly different than bears, but. Yeah, I mean, sim- kind of the same idea. And yeah. that <clears throat> yep. they're bred at a certain time. The, the, yeah. Yeah, it's, it is fascinating. So my whole point in telling you that. We're talking about populations. Yep. My whole point in telling you that is that they're, depending where and when you are, you have really high chances of seeing good numbers of snakes or very little chances of seeing snakes. So, I for see. example, if you are at one of these overwintering sites in the spring or fall when they're going in or coming out, they'll typically linger there for a while, for a week, two weeks, make sure things are right. And if you're there at the right time, you could see a lot of snakes at once. If you go out into these foraging grounds and, or if you're in these migration corridors, your chances of seeing snakes are very little to none. You certainly could bump into one, but it'd be you're Just walking through the woods. Yeah, there's one sitting near a tree foraging. <clears throat> If you go to these gestation rocks, and I should also say that all snakes, usually at least once a year, also go to similar rocks to shed their skin. If you're at these places, you also stand a high chance of seeing a good number of snakes. Mm. Um, and then, so then you, you, you broaden your scale a little bit. And there are certainly places where there are good rattlesnake populations and places where there are not. So this particular ridge you were on, might be a relatively robust rattlesnake population. And so those might have been foraging snakes, or you might have been relatively close to one of these so, breeding So it's kind of like the fishing, the fishing analogy of 90% of the fish may live in 10%, 10% of the water, something like that. Like, so the, there's not a... Yeah, so it would be false to think like what we were doing. Yeah, like, that calculation that you did is... Totally is wrong. Probably completely inaccurate. I, and I, and I yeah. would... We would have to be studying that population you're in to understand what those snakes you saw were right. doing. Right. But, but in general, I can tell you <clears throat> there are probably less rattlesnakes on the landscape than most people with a fear of rattlesnakes would envision. But I'll also tell you <clears throat> that most of us who spend any time in the woods have probably walked by many rattlesnakes that we never knew were there. Or we never knew were there. Yeah. That some of the pictures of them... Are amazing. So I've done a lot of radio telemetry studies on various species mm-hmm. of rattlesnakes. Mm-hmm. And it is amazing when you go to find them. I mean, I can know. I've had transmitters in a snake, and I'm standing here with technicians, but I have a technician standing where you are, maybe a little bit further away. And, and for the listeners, that's, you know, let's say four eight feet. feet. Yeah, we're four feet, but say four, five to 10 feet. Okay. In between us, there's a little shrub. We're looking for this snake. We know it's in this shrub. And Sometimes they're hidden and you can barely see them. I've had snakes multiple times. They're literally sprawled out and all of a sudden they just like appear to you. Mm. And I'm looking for a snake in like a five foot square area and it's literally laying out in the middle of it and I can't see it. And I look at snakes almost every day. It's amazing. So my point is, is that um, they have incredible camouflage. They hide quite a bit. Um, So most of the snakes in the landscape 
we don't see, they, they really don't want anything to do with us. So unless we start messing yeah. with them, they're typically not going to start rattling. This is all just fascinating to me. Last question. And yeah. then we got yeah, yeah. to close. Age of rattlesnakes. How long can they live? Rattlesnakes, timber rattlesnakes, probably most rattlesnakes will live longer than most people would think. So they're, strategy. I've already told you they don't give birth every year. Mm-hmm. They are a, a really what I would call a long-lived capital breeder. So okay. a female rattlesnake needs to live her whole life, which we now know of r- timber rattlesnakes in the wild that are over 50 years old. Okay. Wow. And <clears throat> she needs to live her whole life to potentially just give birth once, twice, three times, depending on the mm. situation. Because it can take her 10 years to reach sexual maturity. Mm. depending where she is, say maybe up to five years in between pregnancies. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's fascinating. So animals like that, that have that type of biology, they have evolved where they need, they need to live a long time to achieve their fitness. I heard you mention this on a podcast the other day. You, you, yeah. you essentially said what all animals and what humans are trying to yeah, do. Biological it, yeah, biological success. Yeah. That's another yeah. thing you know, for fitness. We're all trying to produce offspring that in turn will also pass on their genetics. And right. so to achieve that, a timber rattlesnake needs to live a very long life. So anything, they're not adapted to dying. Once they're adults, they die as babies. But once they're adults, they're not adapted. So anything that kills them in between a road, a shovel, a shotgun, a raptor, mm. that is, is not natural. They should have very, very high survival. And so when you start killing adult mm. rattlesnakes, their populations can divi- decline very quickly. So with rattlesnakes because in Because very few of them make it to that kind of maturity. So I would... I remember the K-adapted and R-adapted mm-hmm. type species. K-adapted would be a species that has a ton of offspring, but very few of them survive. Is that right? It's the opposite. But, but yeah. Okay, so R-adapted. Yeah. So like they would produce like tons of baby rattlesnakes. Very few of them would survive to be no, 25 so, years old. Uh, I guess a rattlesnake would be – so a rattlesnake, they would reproduce relatively few times in their lives. They have relatively few offspring. Let's oh, say do they? Five, eight, ten. Okay. Years. See, I was thinking they had a hundred. No, there are some snakes like some of your pythons and stuff. That do okay. That. And then those babies have low survival, but once after four or five years, their survival is much higher. Yeah. And There's then just as not adults, that much they stuff do, that's catching yeah, them. They don't die, but if they don't live, I don't know the exact number, but if they don't live, we know they live over fifty. So if they don't live a long life their chances of replacing themselves in the wild very low. So animals like that, they're not, they're not going to decline overnight. They're not the best indicator. Like we talk about amphibians okay. are, certain lizards. They're not going to, their populations aren't going to decline overnight. But if you start killing the adults, there's going to be very little um, kind of reproductive success in their populations to kind of click. And, so, and a lot of people might, gets back to a lot of the core of what we're talking about. A lot of people may take that as, oh, good, I can kill all the rattlesnakes. But from my perspective... That's a reason not to kill the rattlesnakes because yeah. we want them as a component. Well, 10 years from now, when that female is supposed to be given birth, she's not because you killed her. Yeah. You're not going to feel yeah. that until your kids are 20 years old and there's no rattlesnakes on the mountain. Exactly. I mean, and then that, her babies don't get born, but even those babies would have taken 10 years. And so it's the rattlesnakes play the long game, if mm. you will, whereas mice play the short game. You kill every mouse in your cabin. They're going to be mice when you get back to it yeah, next time. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you kill the one adult rattlesnake, you know, over time. You know, I, there's, it's funny. There's a lot of similarities between the strategies of a bear and a timber rattlesnake. 
They live in the same places. You think yeah. about it, a bear sleeps during the winter, yeah, makes yeah. a living for eight or nine months a year. He has a delayed implantation. I mean, rattlesnakes doing the same thing. Yeah, that's they're both great animals. So. Yeah. Great and, symbols. hey, this has been fascinating. Really has. Really has, man. Thanks a ton for meeting me over here. No problem. It would only have been better if you'd have brought a rattlesnake. I, I would have, and I would encourage you to uh, to come to, to my office and, and bring, I would like bring to some of that. your youngins here, and, and yeah. we will. I'll put a rattlesnake in a safe manner in their hands. Yes, ma'am. Hey, don't tempt us. We'll do it. <laughs> yeah. We'll do it. Um, well, where can people find you? Yeah, so um, I'm on all, all the social media platforms, uh, Instagram and uh, Facebook, and you can look me up there, uh, Christopher Jenkins. Christopher Jenkins. And um, Instagram, I'm Dr. D-R-C-L Jenkins. Okay. Um, and then, uh, but the place I would encourage everybody to go is what's really the important part, and that's the Orient Society's website, yeah. and that's more about the animals. You don't want to hear much about me. So um, so check out the Orient Society website, which is okay. um, at orient.org org which is o-r-i-a-n-n-e dot o-r-g and uh yeah i just wanted to thank you it's been great to meet you in person we've talked or at least corresponded quite a bit and um yeah i just like to leave everybody with that that concept you know uh when you go out into these wild places where the bears live the rattlesnakes live there too and uh and they belong there you know give them a break when you're out in those types of places yeah Yeah. thank you well Keep the wild places wild because that's where the rattlesnakes live and the bears. You almost said the tagline of the podcast <laughs> on your own without without any instruction there. But, oh, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, Enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.